this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode that was recorded live at San Francisco Blockchain Week with Hasib from Dragonfly Capital. This was a great conversation. Hasib has such an interesting background. Um, when he was a kid around the age of 16, he began playing poker online and later became a professional poker player at around the age of 19, uh, had effectively written a best-selling poker book by the age of 23. And we talked about how his past as a poker player really kind of has translated into his world as a very savvy technology investor. Uh, he eventually um, moved from poker to technology, became a software engineer at Airbnb, uh, working on payment fraud. And so, again, using that background in terms of tells, in terms of scrutiny, uh, a lot of the interesting things that have happened within digital assets and crypto is that people have come into this world that have come from gaming and from poker. And it's not just looking into the, you know, kind of the one step ahead of you. It's actually looking three, four, five, six steps ahead of you. And so having that ability to see all the angles and looking beyond the angles is something that we talked a lot about. So as I mentioned, Hasib recently joined Dragonfly Capital. He was uh, formerly at Metastable. Um, and Dragonfly is an entity that is making investments in things like crypto native funds and also doing direct investments in protocols and applications. So we talked a lot about um, the differences in the protocols that are happening. We talked a lot about the differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum. We talked about DeFi and we talked about picks and shovels. Um, Dragonfly has also got a great uh, founding group. Uh, Alex is over there. Uh, he was formerly at Bain Ventures. And we talked a lot about that. Um, again, this is the narrative that I like to bring up of traditional finance people entering into this world uh, using that same type of rigor uh, that they had uh, in more traditional finance uh, applications and worlds. And so this is a great conversation. Again, um, what I want to give a quick shout out to is folks from BlockWorks Group. Uh, they were uh, really helpful in setting this up and getting me to speak at San Francisco Blockchain Week about two weeks ago uh, and setting me up with a bunch of great interviews, which you'll be hearing on Baselayer in the next few weeks. Please check them out at blockworksgroup.io. Uh, you'll see that there's a link for podcasts and there's a bunch of us that are on there like Charlie Shrem and uh, Meltem and Jill who produce What Grinds My Gears and Capital Allocators is another great one out there. There's a lot of great ones out there, so please check them out. And so, again, remember nothing on base layer is investment advice, so please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear an amazing conversation with Asib, so enjoy. So this is David. We are at San Francisco Blockchain Week. I am with Hasib from Dragonfly. Hasib, how are you? Doing well. This is crazy, isn't it? It's so busy today. It's been insane. It's been a really fun week. It has been. It has been. Um, so we have a lot to talk about. But you know what I like to do on the show is kind of focus on the who, the what, and the why. Mm. Um, and so really want to find out, I think it's for people that are listening to the show, the family offices and the institutional investors, they want to know why people are getting involved in this space. And you have such an interesting background. 
Um, full and fair disclosure, you know, I do not play poker, but you are like a grandmaster. Yeah. Um, so I really, you know, talk to us about like the early days. And I found that a lot of people who are in crypto actually did play poker and they did play chess and they play games. That's right. And it's, it's the way that they think strategically, they think outside of the box and they're yeah. always thinking a few steps ahead. And so I know that we were talking about like, do you really want to talk about that? I'm like, yeah, I do, because it's such an interesting part of your life. So talk to us about those days and then moving forward, you know, to becoming more into the development phase and, you know, kind of getting involved with code and then we'll get into Dragonfly. Totally. So I, so I was a professional poker player from when I was 16 until I was 21. So I started very young. And um, I basically, I um, ended up becoming quite successful. I was sponsored by Fulfilled Poker. I was ranked one of the top 10 poker players in the world. And I learned a lot. Normally, you know, you, I, I, you know, I dropped out of college. I was traveling full time. And uh, part of what I think draws somebody into that world is... Part of it is the drive toward competition and learning and right. just wanting to master something. Uh, part of it, I think also part of the reason why so many poker players end up finding their way into crypto land is poker back then was very much about finding and exploiting small edges in the world mm -hmm. and being able to see around corners right. in something that was otherwise somewhat subversive but was going to end up becoming increasingly lucrative and important. And a lot of the guys who I see who are back in, you know, I recognize a lot of faces who are back in the poker world right. who found their way into crypto in large part because they came into the space back when crypto was pretty weird. It was a pretty fringy movement. And now as crypto is coming into the mainstream, they're very much reaping the rewards of having been early and having, right. having gotten that, that you know, uh, wellspring of information and relationships in a space that's becoming more important mm -hmm. and, and more normalized. Really. Right. So I did that for about five years. Uh, I eventually quit, went back to school, actually studied liberal arts. I didn't even study anything technical. Uh, but eventually I decided that I wanted to get into the tech industry full time. So I went to a coding boot camp, learned how to code. Uh, and from a year of learning how to code, I was able to get a job at Airbnb as a software engineer. And I was working there, working on payments fraud. Uh, I ended up, it was kind of a crazy, crazy whirlwind time from when I moved to San Francisco and started down that path. And because, I think in large part because of my background as a poker player, mm -hmm. part of the reason why I was drawn into payments fraud and anti-fraud and security, which is something that I'd always had a really big interest in, was that I'm, I'm very used to thinking adversarially. Thinking about, you know, if I'm sitting across from you at a poker table, I'm thinking about all the ways that you can screw me, right. all the ways in which you could be lying to me, all the ways in which my model of the world could be incomplete. And you're looking for tells too. That's right. That's right. I'm looking for any information that gives away the truth of what's really going on right. more than just what the appearances give. Right. And in the world of anti-fraud, in the world of security, that's 100% of what it's all about. It's all about somebody who's sufficiently motivated to break your system or to do the wrong thing. How can you make sure there's no holes mm -hmm. in, in the system that you're, that you're putting up for, for good people to interact with? So it was really in the context of, of working on payments and payments fraud that I started getting really interested in crypto. So I'd known about blockchain for a long time. And a lot of my friends had been early into Bitcoin and Ethereum and stuff like that. Uh, but I never really got it. I think I first got my first Bitcoin in like late 2015. Okay. And, uh, but it, it wasn't really, it didn't really strike me like what the big idea was. And it was really from my time at Airbnb where, you know, because Airbnb is a global company and we, you know, we have to pay people all around the world. You know, it's a travel company, right? right. So, the thing you realize working on a payment system that needs to touch everywhere in the world is just how janky that is. Like how utterly ill-suited 
a global financial system is right. uh, for the the fact that the world is now internet first and digital first and global and commerce is no longer constrained by individual financial systems and we were dealing with like these you know crazy like you know excel files that are being shipped back and forth every night at midnight and reconciled manually like this, you know this is not the way that a global financial wow. system is supposed to look and when i saw that that's really when crypto clicked yeah. in my head that what what these people were doing in crypto was not just this experiment with like you know sending money around to buy drugs or whatever it was something deeper than that it was it was a bunch of you know computer scientists and cryptographers and you know uh, philosophers and economists who got together and thought knowing everything we know today right. about the, you know about science and computer science and finance how would you design a monetary system differently if you were to start off from first principles and as an engineer your first instinct when you see a totally broken system is, oh, we should just throw this over and start over, right? right? And that's that's what they did. That's what they're doing. That's what Bitcoin is. That's what Ethereum is. All of these are new takes at designing a financial system from the ground up. And when I saw that, you know, I, I wasn't sure that this was going to be the way that we, the, you know, the way that we pay each other in the future. I wasn't sure that this was going to be the financial system for everything. But what I was sure of was that the way that money evolved in the future like 50 years from now, it's not going to be the way we did money 50 years ago. And right. today it is. There's going to be something different in the way that we use money. And whatever happens in crypto is absolutely going to change the trajectory of how money evolves. How long do you think that actually took you to get to that point? It took me a while. It was not, it was not a quick transition. Uh, I think it was you know, really like a few months of going down the rabbit hole of, of learning what was going on. And, you know, this was like really when all the activity in Ethereum was starting to really bubble up and become very serious. Uh, that's it, it took it took me a few months of both the computer science aspect, but then also delving into the the philosophy, the political theory, the economic, the the, uh, the economic innovations that were going on in crypto. All of that together really got me to understand this is really important, and I want to devote my career to this. So that's fascinating. You know, everyone has their own kind of origin story, right. and I think that tells a lot about you know people whether it's you know because they saw the economic opportunities or they saw that you know this notion of centralized versus decentralized mm. you know a lot of people wanted to burn the whole system down of course of course um, a lot of my friends very early on who I knew who were into Bitcoin you know they were uh, you know a lot of them were folks who like you know grew up in Latin America or in the USSR and like they saw you know the, the, the dissolution of of uh, uh, centrally controlled financial systems and so their their draw to Bitcoin was more you know screw the system and for me, like, you know, I grew up, I grew up in the first world. I, I have no beef with fiat currencies, you know, like for the most part, like they're fine. Right. I, I don't have much to complain about. My interest in crypto is more around what I think is going to be the, the leading edge of innovation. I think that crypto is going to change the world and I want to be a part of that. So moving forward to Dragonfly, yes. you recently just made that move. I did. And a lot of people were really excited about it. Um, for those that don't know, Hasim has got a lot of you know, followers, um, and he's very well you know, sought after as a thinker in this space. Um, and I can see why. And so you know, talk to us about Dragonfly. Dragonfly has been around for a little while. Mm. You're, one of your founders actually came from more traditional finance backgrounds in, in Bain, That's right. Bain Ventures. Yeah. Um, Tell us a little bit about Dragonfly. Uh, give us the kind of the one-on-one on Dragonfly, and then I want to talk to you a little bit in terms of your investment processes. How you're actually evaluating whether it's funds, because I believe you guys make fun, you know investments in funds. Mm-hmm. If it's in direct opportunities and projects and protocols, 
So let's just talk to us a little bit about what Dragonfly is. Absolutely. So Dragonfly, um, so yeah, I joined relatively recently, so it's been really uh, kind of drinking from a fire hose and getting ramped up, but now I feel uh, pretty situated, so enough that I feel confident telling you the story. So Dragonfly was founded a little bit over a year ago, and uh, the whole vision behind Dragonfly is that crypto, unlike most other asset classes, um, was global from day one. Like the moment that, that uh, Bitcoin came onto the scene, it everywhere in the world people were using it. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't unlike the internet. It wasn't just you know some local institutions that started out and building it out and, and eventually exporting it to other countries. Once it's finished, the entire world has been participating in crypto since the whole project began. And you know a lot of the a lot of the funds and the previous fund that I was at, Metastable Capital. Um, you know we mostly just looked at stuff in the Bay Area. We most just looked at stuff that was you know purely the Anglophone market. And the reality is that crypto as a financial system is is global. Not just in the sense that, yes, everywhere uses it, but in fact, it has more usage and volume outside the U.S. than inside the U.S., right? Yep. The U.S. is like 20, 25% of global crypto demand. And so what that tells you, the majority of that volume is really in Asia. And so to just be investing in U.S. projects, which is really what I was doing up until fairly recently, um, is kind of, you know, the parable of the elephant, where, you know, you have all these Silicon Valley VCs kind of grabbing onto the tail of the elephant and saying, like, oh, well, this elephant just got around and thin, and yep. it's like the internet, and, you know, you have all these metaphors coming out about basically Silicon Valley metaphors for what crypto is. Um, but the reality is that so much of this elephant is, is in Asia, and it looks very different than it looks in the West. And the kinds of projects and the kinds of companies that are actually accruing the most value are things that, you know, Silicon Valley VCs basically don't understand and wouldn't be able to invest in it if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, that's the driving thesis behind Dragonfly, is that we are very much the bridge between the East and the West when it comes to investing in crypto. And we think you need a global perspective in order to invest in crypto effectively, especially going forward over the next few years. Right. So early on, I think most of what's going on in crypto is really setting the foundation line. You know, like, is it going to be Bitcoin? Is it going to be Ethereum? Is it going to be Algorand or Tezos or whatever else? Uh, but pretty soon, probably within the next few years, the operating system of crypto will, will all but be decided. And then most of the valuable investments that you can make are really going to accrue at the application level. They're going to accrue at the financial stack. And not all that, you know, a small minority of it, really yeah. on a global scale, is going to be in the US. So, so we, uh, we you know, we're three partners, myself and my partner, uh, uh, Alex Pat, mm -hmm. who used to be leading crypto investments at Bain Capital. Uh, he, he and I are based in San Francisco, and our other partner, Bo Fong, he's based in Beijing. And he's a you know, very seasoned VC who's you know, been in the space for 20 years and invested in a lot of the big internet titans in, in China. And so with, with our visibility, we basically see everything in the space, both in the West and in the East. And we invest in, uh, like you mentioned, we invest in funds, although we're doing less of that lately. Um, and we also invest in tokens, uh, and we invest in equity. We pretty much do anything that we think is going to prove value. So you kind of alluded to the protocol wars. Yeah. And, you know, there's this idea that, you know, obviously, Bitcoin is a consensus network. You know, can you build on top of that? Do you really want to build on top of that? You know, is it something whereas you need Ethereum, where that is a Turing complete system, where you have some contracts, you can build on top of that? You know, a lot of people equate that to the the founding skeleton, if you will, of Web 3.0. Mm. Um, and then there's the other ones like Tezos, Algorand, some of the other protocols. And you said that you feel that in the next few years we're going to have clarity as to kind of who the winners are. Right. Without obviously asking you to predict who the winners are, yeah. what do you think some of the telltale signs are in terms of 
what those winners will have done. What are the, some of the things, what are some of the patterns and the recognition that you can make from what you've seen over the last few years? What is it really going to see, what are you going to be able to tell us you know, that will, you know, some of the things that we need to look for. Is it developer community? Is it actually, you know, getting, you know, from a move from proof of work to proof of stake like Ethereum is doing to actually get that staking mechanism working? Is it governance? Is it scalability? What are some of the ear markers that we really need to be focused on as we look to see how the protocol wars play out? Yeah, that's a great question. To be clear, the protocol wars are all happening below Bitcoin, right? right? Like Bitcoin is basically done right you know it's a finished product and it's going to be digital gold and it's very hard for anybody else Agreed. to really compete with that so the question is what is going to be the application slash smart contract layer for for blockchains and right now obviously the front runner is ethereum and the question really is simply this is anybody going to kill ethereum and the most likely answer is no most likely answer is that ethereum wins um, but i would i would put that as like maybe slightly above 50 percent chance that Ethereum wins. There's a, there's a high likelihood that somebody within the next couple of years is able to come up from behind and eat Ethereum's lunch, but we don't know who it is. And it's, you know, just looking at markers like how much money have they raised or, you know, how much TPS do they support, how many, how many transactions can they support, uh, that is clearly not enough in order to actually adjudicate who has a chance of really winning here because so much of being an application layer is about network effects. You know, it's, it's like... Um, you know, the, 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 the most obvious thing that's going to tell us who's winning is just simply where is all of the financial applications going? If, in fact, we see very high TPS, for example, on EOS, right, which we do today, uh, lots of applications are using EOS block space because it's very cheap. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of competition for the mm -hmm. block space. Um, but most of the games we see on EOS are like you know, they're gambling, they're, they're fairly low value applications. Um, and so just the number of uh, transactions doesn't tell us anything. And even the fact that there might be a lot of developers building on EOS doesn't really tell us anything if there aren't a lot of users. Right. There's not a lot of financial value there. Right now, almost all the financial value that's built on decentralized blockchains is almost all on Ethereum. And the only question, I think, that will, will decide for us where is this going will be if those people or the new people who end up launching financial assets on crypto mm -hmm. decide to migrate from Ethereum to somewhere else. That, in my mind, will be the telltale sign that, okay, we know who's going to win now. Do you think it's been fair for investors outside of the box to really evaluate transactions per second relative to Visa? I, I think this is a huge, it's, it's a very silly game that I think a lot of people are playing. Uh, for, on, the, on the one hand, like TPS doesn't really mean a lot right. in isolation. Uh, because, so one, you can have transactions per second at layer two as opposed to at layer one. And already we have, you know, things like state channels that arguably are, can, can do effectively unlimited TPS, right? Um, and so depending on how you count, you could already say that anybody who has a state channel open can have millions of TPS. There's just two people talking to each other back and forth very quickly. Um, if you're talking about TPS at the base layer, now that's a little bit more objective. But the reality is, you know, we have, uh, we have certain platforms that have extremely high TPS, but the security level of those transactions are so low that it's not really comparable to the security of a transaction on Ethereum, mm -hmm. right? So Ethereum transaction, if it goes through and is confirmed, I'm, I'm completely confident that I could send, you know, hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of dollars through Ethereum and be totally safe. Whereas doing that through, you know, some, some coin very, very low on the, on the list that has very high TPS, but the security of the chain is so low, it kind of doesn't matter that it has high TPS, right? But what I care about is moving transactions quickly with security. So comparing that to Visa, I think, is, is just, you know, it's, it's a fun game to play. 
Uh, it's good for marketing, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, but it's it's not particularly meaningful when it comes to what blockchains are useful for. And so thinking about the stack, I call it the substrate layers, you know, of, mm-hmm. you know, this idea of Web3, yeah. you know, this, this this kind of vision that we have of Web3, yeah. and there's file storage, and there's query, and then there's, you know, different indexing components of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine when you're looking at different opportunities and different projects, is there, you know, something out there that really signals to you, you know, are there, are there enough projects in those spaces right now where there's enough deal origination, there's enough people building that space, or is it something to the effect of you're you're from a programming background? Yeah. You know, Ethereum was used with Solidity, and most, you know, I did some coding too. I taught myself how to code. Mm. Solidity is not the easiest thing to really get. Um, Everyone else is using Rust or they're using, you know, different things like JavaScript and TypeScript. Um, In terms of the language barriers for developers and then building of those projects, do you think there's any kind of correlation there that we're not seeing enough projects being built or are we seeing enough projects being built? Yeah. So we're seeing, I mean, we're never seeing enough projects being built, right? Like ultimately the number of developers in blockchain land is orders of magnitude smaller than the people building on mobile or the people building on web. Right. So clearly, but I mean, there's a reason for this. And I don't think the reason is that the tools suck, right? Like the reality is that if you want to build on iOS today, the tools still kind of suck for iOS. Like they're not that great, but there's still millions of iOS developers. And why is that? The answer is that because that's where the people are, right? Like developers will put up with a lot of bullshit to build products that people actually use. The reason why developers are not here yet is not because of Solidity. It's because there aren't people here using their applications, right? So the... And I think that will eventually change, but it's going to take time. And right now, the developers that we're seeing, I mean, the users who we're seeing on blockchain are all early adopters. They're people who are willing to put up with the weirdness and the bullshit in order to just get access to stuff because they ideologically are are uh, uh, excited about it. Right. And eventually, there's going to be stuff that's more about utility, where people are coming on blockchains, not because they think it's cool, not because they care about decentralization, but because they're actually getting products they can't get elsewhere, and they want those products. Right. The developers will follow once the users are there. Um, but already, you know, once we have Ethereum 2.0, people are going to be able to use, you know, because there's going to be uh, uh, EWAS and WebAssembly-based uh, uh, smart contract platforms, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to use Python, you're going to be able to use JavaScript or TypeScript. Uh, that is not going to be the barrier for developers. Do you think we need a killer app to really get people in? Or is it something that just through evolution, there's an evolutionary process that people will finally start realizing the potentiality and the the opportunities within these different applications. And you just said it too. I think we're a little ways away from applications. Mm. You know, I always like to think, you know, in terms of, you know, getting one of my relatives to give up Facebook. Yeah. You know, what does that entail? You know, does that entail, you know, that basically that thing has to be as performant. It has to give them the same type of characteristics. But it also has to have something else on top of that to say, okay, I'm done with Facebook. I'll use you know, de-Facebook, right. um, you know, do we, you know, is there enough of that happening right now? Do you think that we're there yet? You know, do we have that killer app? And how long do you think it's going to take to get that killer app if we need it? It's always a tough question. So my my take, and this is somewhat controversial, so you mentioned Web3, and you mentioned sort of de-Facebook as an example of such an application. Uh, I, historically, I'm part of companies, a lot of investors here, um, but I am fairly bearish on the Web3 story. And to be specific, what I mean by Web3 is Web3 is this idea of like, okay, well, there was the web, and now there's going to be the decentralized web, and right. everybody's going to use this decentralized web built on top of blockchains. 
And I, I think that this story is, is, is mostly made up by investors. The reality is that most people either don't know or don't care about how decentralized the applications they use are. And the only way that you're going to win a really large swath of users in the end is by providing them value they cannot get elsewhere. Yep. And I think so far, you know, if you look at blockchains historically, um, you, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto invented the notion of a blockchain in order to implement Bitcoin as the first instance of decentralized money. And everybody, myself included, looked at that data structure and thought, wow, I bet you could do all sorts of stuff with blockchains. Right. And so far, that thesis has kind of come out negative. Right? It doesn't really seem like we, there's that many new things that people actually want. The real thing that people are excited about and that people actually do seem to be using is blockchains to implement finance, blockchains to implement money. And that, to me, is a signal that that's the big kahuna. That's the real thing that people are going to get uh, excited about and start using. And so all the stuff that we're seeing in blockchain that's getting real demand and getting real adoption is all around this notion of decentralized finance. Right? And so I believe that already... It's very obvious that, like already, there is a killer app for crypto, right? And you know, let's let's hand wave speculation and trading and all this stuff. The killer app for crypto is getting U.S. and all, uh, sorry, U.S. dollar denominated assets anywhere in the world with just an internet connection. Yeah. That we know there is going to be tremendous demand for around the world, but there still aren't that many people using it because blockchains are hard, they're confusing, right. there aren't you know, there's not a lot of easy distribution mechanisms. But you know, I I have a very hard time believing that people in Venezuela or people in you know, Indonesia or people in Vietnam don't want to have access to dollars with a cell phone. I also think that there's a time scale issue. You yes. know, in 1993, you know, I was listening to a podcast with Mark Andreessen uh, that he did with Katie Hong in, in August, and it really resonated with me, and I talk about it a lot, that, you know, to get on the internet in 93, you had to download, you had to basically put TCP IP on your computer, you mm-hmm. had the floppy disk and all, you had to call a local ISP, and, and then after all of those things that you had to do by yourself, you had to hope and pray that you didn't basically fry your computer. And it was not an easy operation to get on the internet initially. Right. And then obviously we had Mosaic, and then we had Net, you know at Netscape, and things got much easier, and you know things happened. And I think we just have to have some sense of time that you know yes, Bitcoin has been around for ten years now, um, but some of the things that we're talking about in terms of you know a new Internet, mm-hmm. you know, I agree with you that there is it's a very complex, you know, kind of operation to get it accomplished. But I think we need to give it a little time. That these operations and these systems and these applications are quite difficult to really get accomplished and get yeah. done. Yeah. Um, and so, going back to Dragonfly a little bit. So, in terms of some of the, the the narratives or themes that you guys are looking at in terms of investment, is it? DeFi? Is it scaling? Is it governance? What are some of the main kind of thematics that you guys are looking at there? So definitely DeFi, I think, is going to be a big story in crypto adoption over the next few years. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that, like I mentioned, uh, finance and access to financial products is going to lead a lot of that. Um, Probably the second theme we're looking at is, like you mentioned, these protocol wars. So I think probably within the next two years, it will be effectively decided what is going to be the operating system for blockchains. And if, if it ends up not being Ethereum, then finding and investing in that asset early before it sort of overtakes um, is probably going to be one of the best performing investments over the next few years. Um, so that's number two. And the third theme I think we're really going to see is the rise of China. So, uh, you know, I think many of your listeners might have seen the uh, announcement by Xi Jinping just yep. earlier this week about basically declaring effectively a blockchain space race. 
that now China sees blockchain as a strategic technological battleground, and they want to advance the state of blockchain within China. And this is going to lead to, you know, before blockchain and crypto were kind of risque within China, sort of operated within a gray zone. Um, and now there's a lot more social license and a lot more uh, uh, license on the, on the part of businesses and government institutions to start really heavily exploring blockchains as a as a way to increase efficiency and to to you know help China pull ahead in the U.S. I mean, it's very much a strategic thing for them. It's a space race. That's right. That's right. And right now, you know, uh, for us, it, it, it's hard to be more excited about the prospects for you know what what was once kind of. You know, when when China banned crypto exchanges, a lot of crypto activity really went dark in China. It was still there, of course. You know, crypto has tremendous demand and excitement on the ground in China, uh, but because of the the party's attitude toward crypto being very you know kind of kind of shadowy, uh, most people were not able to ap- uh, act and proselytize out in the open, and that's changed. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see a big explosion in China and. We're very much positioned to capitalize on that from where we sit. And also, one of the other kind of caveats or one of the other kind of areas you mentioned, although you said it was decelerating with funds, Mm. you know, can you give us a little bit of a, you know, from your perspective and observation, you know, I've seen numbers that there's about 600 funds in the market right now, 700 funds in the market right now. Right. Some fund to funds tell me that it's about 80%, you know, more kind of liquid hedge funds and 20% pure venture. From what you guys have seen so far, and what you guys have invested, is that kind of fall? Is that fall true that it's that kind of an eighty twenty break? Um, and is there anything that you've been able to see thus far? You know, looking at funds that really is an earmarker for success. Yeah, so I think you know, for us, we we kind of separate space into like the the long only and then the quantitative strategies that try to be market neutral. And I think the you know there, there was a big glut over the last few years of these long only strategies that are primarily just buying and holding crypto assets. And it's very clear that like there are there are now much much better alternatives to most of these things. And so the arbitrage of basically offering exposure to to you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and a few other assets uh, that's going away. And, and I think it's good that the market is becoming more efficient in that regard. Um, so the 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 folks out in mostly Silicon Valley who uh, are leading the, the very best long-only crypto funds. Um, I think there will always be a place for them, just because there's a lot of value to be had in finding and tracking these things early. Um, but they're relatively few that I think are very well positioned for that sort of thing. Uh, on the quantitative side, we're seeing a lot more traditional players get into the space, um, and so that's becoming more competitive as well. But ultimately, it's it's a the the space of of strategies that can work in crypto is quite large and it's still not that efficient of a market relative to, you know, if you, if you talk to any of the traders who like left places, you know, like Jane Street or Susquehanna and are now getting into crypto, you know, they are just, they're, they're just, you know, wide eyed and their mouths water when they see the spreads between some of these things. Yeah. So I think there's still plenty of room for uh, investing in, you know, a lot of these strategies don't have a ton of capacity, but there, there are a lot of great traders who are getting into crypto and, you know, helping make these markets more efficient and, and capturing some spreads. Um, but, I think that is going to become increasingly competitive, but there's still a lot of great opportunities there. And so the other thing that we like to do on the show with guests is get to know you a little bit more. Yeah. Um, aside from the poker player, aside from Dragonfly and uh-huh. all that great stuff, um, there are two things that we typically put into our brains on a daily basis. I hope you get to read, um, and I think you probably are probably a very well-read person. Um, so anything that you've read recently that really resonated with you, and it could be something, you know, it could be a, it could be a blog or it could be a book. 
Um, but something that you read that really resonated with you deeply. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I know one of your other co-founders at Metastable, who's a very, very profound reader. That's right. And I'm That's sure right. there's lots of those conversations in the past. Yeah. Um, but also music. I think mm-hmm. no one asks this question. Nobody does ask about music. That's no. True. And that really tells about a person's personality. Yeah. And I always like to joke, you know, some people that have been on the show have liked, you know, hip-hop from the 90s. Yeah. Some of like death metal, like Jeremy Welsh, the, the founder of Casa, which was a complete surprise. Right. Um, and so I think music tells a lot about what's really inside you, what yeah. really gets you, you know, motivated, or gets you kind of locked in to really, you know, focus your coding. Mm-hmm. So anything, you know, in terms of music that you listen to, yeah. um, and anything that you've read recently that really kind of resonates. So I have been on a kick of listening to the new Kanye album. Oh. And I found it, uh, it's kind of weird. I think like it's a little bit, it's like very gospel inspired, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's got some real just killer, killer tracks in it. So I, I, anybody who hasn't listened to it yet, I'd, I'd recommend okay. it. Um, on the reading side, uh, I have been reading. I don't. I don't get a ton of time to read non-blockchain stuff these days, <laughs> just because like my reading list for blockchain things is yeah. always just you know, unbelievably long. So most of my time, I end up reading you know, white papers and academic papers and th- things like that. But in terms of non-blockchain reading, um, I've been I've been getting through this book called Seeing Like a State, hmm. and it's a, it's a very fascinating book that's kind of about how um, basically being a being a state, the, the, the key word in the book is the notion of legibility. The idea is that if you are a state, as uh, the, the area and, and uh, you know, economy that you govern becomes more and more complex, yeah. the hardest part about being a state is understanding what is going on inside your borders. And as states have become more complex, this has become harder. And the idea of the basic idea behind this book is how do states change what's inside them in order to make what's inside them more legible? Huh. In order to better understand what's going on, and so you know, one of they, they talk about many examples of this, such as um, you know forms of city architecture and city planning that are not necessarily made to make the city more efficient, but to make it easier for the state to understand and regulate the, the, the cities, huh. um, or scientific forestry, which actually does a lot to make forests less uh, robust mm-hmm. and more likely to burn and create monocultures and things like that, um, but it makes it easier for the state to understand what's going on in our forests, which right. is an important resource. Uh, so there are a lot of different examples of this that I think are uh, help you understand the difficulty of statecraft and why a lot of structures around both regulation and just governance evolve the way that they do. It's not just a disinterested approach toward you know uh, governing the resources of a state, but it's also making it easier for the state to understand what the hell is going on. That's so interesting. So yeah. it's a really fascinating book. I'm reading Jared Diamond's Collapse, and that kind of uh, talks about you know sovereigns and states and countries that basically you know similar. It's they did not necessarily learn from the past. Right. Um, some of them have might have been less literate, and so the stories didn't transcend. Mm. Um, some of them just ignored it. You know, right. like you know, there's an interesting story he tells about the 1973 oil crisis here in the states. And then five, ten years later, we all start buying SUVs like we completely forgot. Totally. Um, and so it's really interesting. Anywhere that people can find out more about Dragonfly, get you know in touch with you, we always like to let people do that too. Yeah, absolutely. So you, uh, Dragonfly, you can look us up. We're at bcp.capital. And uh, easiest way to get in touch with me is uh, find me on Twitter. I'm at Haseeb, H-O-S-S-E-E-B, or just Google my name and you'll find me. Awesome. Thanks, Haseeb. Oh, it was a pleasure. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash baselayer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. 
which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.